welcome to the home stretch, almost, uh, our third and last panel on disillusionment as a path to enlightenment. Uh, the topics that we hope to cover are uh, in your in your handout, and uh, if you if you look at that, what happens when a beloved Buddhist teacher or revered psychoanalyst commits an ethical violation? How can the experiences of disillusionment become a path to greater freedom? How do the practices of psychoanalysis and Buddhism help individuals contain their insecurities or uncertainties in a manner that encourages enlightenment? How are Buddhist and, uh, and psychoanalytic liberation or freedom different or similar in regard to disillusionment? And how does such freedom look in everyday life within a family or community? So uh, an ambitious agenda for a panel. Um, but I'd like, to, I'd like to start with a story uh, that goes back uh, a number of years about a, an American psychoanalyst and a British psychoanalyst were having a discussion at, a, at an international meeting and the, the Brit asked the American, oh, how, how are things going uh, with psychoanalysis in America? And the American said, well, they're not going so well. People are becoming disillusioned with it. And how, how are things going in England? And the Brit says, well, we don't have that problem because they've never been illusioned with it in the first place. So, with that, I will introduce our first panelist, Bob Waldinger, a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and Zen priest. He's clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital where he directs a teaching program in psychoanalytic psychotherapy for psychiatry residents. He's also the fourth director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, an old study, uh, a study that has tracked, tracked the lives of 724 privileged and underprivileged men for 75 years. And tomorrow he will be giving a TED Talk on this subject. So you can get in touch with him if you, wanna, if you want details. Uh, the study focuses on how relationships impact our health and well-being throughout adult life. He's now beginning a study of the more than 2,000 baby, baby boomer children of these men to understand how and by what mechanisms the quality of childhood experience affects health and well-being in midlife. He's the author of two books and numerous articles published in obscure journals read by very few people. <laughs> Bob has a private practice of psychoanalytic therapy in Newton. He's a senior Dharma teacher in Boundless Way Zen and ordained as a priest in 2013. He leads two sanghas in Newton Center and at the Mass General Hospital. Well, um, equanimity in 10 minutes. Um, what I realized as I thought about what in the world I was going to say was that I have so many images of equanimity. I have so many stories I tell myself about what equanimity is. And then I looked up there. That blue guy, that guy just oozes equanimity, right? And what I realize is that in many ways the culture portrays both 
the results of Zen practice and the results of analysis as bringing us to a place where it's all equanimous, where it's all good, where we're fully analyzed, where we're completely enlightened. Um, you know, when I, when I come back from retreats, people will often say to me, oh, was it really relaxing? And it's like, oh my God. I mean, those, those of you who've been on retreats know, you know, it's anything but relaxing. And if you think about the achievements of psychoanalysis, I mean, Freud's idea that, well, we'll get to, what we want to do is get the person to everyday unhappiness. Um, you know, so, but the images are so powerful. Um, when I was starting out in psychoanalytic training, there was a joke that the way to fit in at my psychoanalytic institute was to dress British, think Yiddish, and act a little depressed. <laughs> and, and of course, nobody here is like that. But, but I will say that, that one of the things that I've encountered among, among the stereotypes that I find in both practices is a sense that what we want to get to in the, as a result of the fruits of spiritual practice is a kind of zenning out, if you will, where we're never perturbed, we're never overwhelmed, we're never caught in a hell realm. And with psychoanalysis, uh, sometimes someone will be behaving badly and, and someone else will say, do you believe that he had an analysis? Obviously, it wasn't a complete analysis. <laughs> the idea is that if you have a complete analysis, you never behave badly again. Right? Um, but I realized that these images, they're not just out there in the culture. They're in here. Um, I remember one of my early times on retreat, I was in just a horrible place. I was so consumed with self-loathing. I've had a lot of psychoanalysis, right? So I'm sitting there on my cushion just filled with self-loathing. And I went into my teacher and confessed all this, feeling like a total failure. And he said to me, I want you to go back out, sit on that cushion, and be the Buddha of self-loathing. And actually, that experience was hugely helpful. Uh, the self-loathing, of course, like everything else, passed away. But the terrible disillusionment was, wait, this is it? This is really it? That, that sometimes being consumed with self-loathing, that's the life that I'm facing toward? And that's what I came to learn about, both in practice and in psychoanalysis. That what we're really talking about is facing toward and welcoming everything, including the really bad parts. That wasn't the story I told myself about what was going to happen in analysis or what was going to happen as the result of spiritual practice. Um, and what I realized is that these shadows, these, these stereotypes of the zenned out person or the completely analyzed person who's always chill, those stories come from my deep longings, my deep longings to idealize something, somebody, somebody who's got it all figured out. So that, yes, there will be a place to get to. I'm not there yet, but that person exists. That person who's always equanimous. That person who is always in control 
and never overwhelmed by sorrow or heartache or rage or lust. So, what I've come to understand is that those deep longings are what we actually need to welcome. That my own longings to idealize, to have an idea of equanimity that you really can get to, that those longings I need to welcome, not to believe, but to really see and hold lightly and to get that, yes, that's part of being human, really wanting something out there to idealize. Um, and so, what then? If we don't fully believe these, these stereotypes, um, the problem is that when we do believe them, they carry with them the shadows that I think we've been talking about um, throughout this conference. Um, one is suppression. So one of the things you, you may have encountered certain meditation teachers who have a kind of bland sweetness. And you may have encountered certain analysts who have a kind of bland gravitas. The psychoanalytic conferences, you know, we, we complain about them, some of the analysts, and it's not just because they're serious and they're not nice to each other, it's because they're not a lot of fun often. It's, they're not the biggest parties. Um, because there is, there can be a sense in these communities that the place to get to is a place of suppression. That's one of the shadows of these images of, these ideal images of equanimity. The other shadow, of course, is that because most of us are human and we never get to that place, then there is the sense of having failed. What if I am not a person who is always equanimous, even after I've achieved some bits of realization? Um, what does that mean? And then the, the third shadow that I think of a lot is apathy. Well, if it's all one, if it's all equal, then okay, you know, people have been blown up in Paris. That's just what human life is. Uh, we, just, we just accept it, right? Nothing to do. The planet is burning up, nothing to do, right? That's another shadow side of these images of equanimity that are stereotypes. So, and finally, just to touch on, do I have a little bit of time? Okay. Just to touch on the issue of the spiritual teacher, one of the problems with the spiritual teacher who transgresses is often many of those people and analysts are quite isolated. And some of the transgression comes because they have nobody to whom they can talk about their humanity because they are in an isolated place. Contrast that with approaching equanimity from a non-dual place, from a place where what we're really talking about is welcoming everything. Everything is included. The heartache of the bombings in Paris, the joy of walking out in the cold weather at lunch, um, the whole catastrophe. And what, so what we aim for really is a kind of aliveness, a kind of increasing aliveness and an increasing freedom to experience all of it, including at times being completely caught up in a hell realm and knowing, yeah, this is it. Um, this, is, this is the life that I'm facing toward. So my understanding of equanimity that we hope to get to is one where there's nothing out there to get. There's simply more and more freedom to experience everything arising in each moment.
Thank you, Bob. Uh, our next panelist is Robert Langen, uh, who is a training and supervising analyst, uh, faculty, and former fellow and director of curriculum at the William Allenson White Institute, as well as former book review editor of the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis, which published my first paper. Yeah. Hmm. So I have fond feelings for that journal. Uh, he has presented nationally and abroad, published widely on sundry topics, and his longstanding practice of Buddhism gave rise to Minding What Matters, Psychotherapy, and the Buddha Within, published in 2006. He maintains a private psychoanalytic practice in New York City, and he will define for us disillusionment. <clears throat> so you think. <laughs> Yours is a hard act to follow. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I realized that my word was disillusionment, and of course it has a lot to do with the uh, themes that we've been talking about throughout the conference, um, I thought, well, hmm. The first thing that occurred to me was what many people say is a typical and important stage in any psychoanalysis, namely that point when the patient reaches the capacity to experience a disillusionment with the analyst. And of course this would be the one who was supposed to know, the one who uh, was the wise guide, uh, the one who actually could be whatever you wished on your good days, um, suddenly seems to be more like just another person, not just another person, but another person you have a particular relationship with that is as valuable as ever, even more so maybe, now that you can feel like it's, uh, there's an equality in it, if not an equanimity, but a person-to-person -person, uh, ability to be in a, in a strangely, uh, for the circumstances, intimate exchange. What's strange about it, of course, is that there's a differential in the power relationship, in the roles that each person is taking, uh, you know, when else do you tell someone, you know, what's closest to your heart and, oh, time's up, and, oh, I forgot to give you your bill. You know, this is, a, this is, of course, expectable because that very frame where all of this occurs is what allows the relationship to take place. The, the, uh, the safety of the arrangement and the knowledge that there won't be any ethical violations which would lead to such grievous disillusionments is built into the nature of the treatment. Uh, that's what you need for the trust and safety to allow the analytic process to continue. So, let's say that's broken. There's, you know, a sexual encounter or, you know, we can think of all of these as uh, all of the various possibilities. And it can be uh, shattering because essentially once that happens, there's no return. You can't go back to where the frame was intact or where the, the lens that the two of you shared in looking at a life um, is magically put together. And in a way, both parties are left uh, lost and awash in, oh, just another mess, you know, just another dashed hope. Uh, there's a kind of tragedy to it. And what happens then? 
Well, Melissa told us about her experience in being shattered by uh, the sexual advances of a teacher, which could have disillusioned her with the whole process of uh, studying Zen and the Zen practice and so on. And yet somehow she emerged from the other side of it. This, the capacity of people to do this um, is you know, extraordinary. A lot of people don't succeed at it or can't. And yet, you know, this also lends itself to the rationalization of the uh, super smart, uh, you know, analyst or super smart teacher of uh, Buddhism who, you know, delivers this terrible blow to you so that you'll grow from it and it will make you even stronger or, you know, something along those lines. But, you know, most typically that seems to be an obvious rationalization. Um, instead, uh, what I would propose as a way of looking at, uh, at, at what the healing process involves is re-illusionment. You come, you spring back from it, somehow you do what you need to, uh, or uh, you might actually have sort of a substitutive uh, ploys that you use. Uh, one that occurred to me was the, the James Thurber story about the secret life of J. Walter Mitty, where here's this mild-mannered man walking down the street, etc. Little do you know that he's a fighter pilot at that moment, diving into the Nazi ranks and you know killing all of those people, or you know whatever all of the other ones uh, in the story of J. Walter Mitty were. This only occurred to me today, of course. Uh, but something that occurred to me yesterday in the course of people's conversations was remembering the Salinger story, A Great Day for Banana Fish, uh, the gist of which is the protagonist, Seymour Glass, is on vacation at a resort in Florida, supposedly, is walking down the beach and a little girl comes up and you know is playing in the surf and I don't remember the details exactly, but he explains to her how these fantasy fish these banana fish uh, are out there, and I forget how the fantasy works. But it's this kind of delightful fantasy that gets her interest. She's wrapped in the story, and he's very good at telling it. And okay, so that episode finishes. He walks on, walks into the sea, and drowns himself. And then there's, of course, a whole series of uh, wonderings that go on into the Franny and Zoe collection of uh, subsequent stories. But the, uh, there's a, some sort of a disillusionment that's hinted at in this story, and that is, uh, you know, not easily explainable. It's going to take time. And you could say that, uh, now, w what's the suicide about? Does it have to be depression, or do we have to explain it? How can the same man who one moment is telling this delightful story to the little girl in the next moment, follow through on this, you know, terribly self-destructive act. I don't know, you know, is he disillusioned? Or is he not re-illusioned in some way? And this, this you know, idea that I'm batting around of the re-illusionment is that, um, in a sense, the capacity to become another person uh, requires leaving the old way of being behind. And so what uh, disillusionment requires is getting rid of, an, of a uh, habitual self-state or a habitual way of beating, 
being, which then opens up the possibility of another way of being. The, where this can lead, I think if you push it in the long run, is to the notion that all ways of being are illusionments. They're illusionments not because uh, simply that they're untrue, but because they're permeable or flexible. You know, that in, that in some way, what, what, uh, to my way of thinking, both uh, Buddhism and psychoanalysis are driving towards or revealing uh, is a capacity for uh, uh, becoming, having your experience become more boundless. This is the emptiness, right? So this is this, uh, this feeling that there are all sorts of possibilities and that the possibilities are within your grasp, your psychological grasp, by virtue of what you pay attention to, essentially. It's like there's, if you think of all of the things in this room, say, the, uh, the lights and the pictures and the clock, uh, what you're wearing, the clothes, the people around you, and so on. Okay, well, that's here. But then there's all of the associations they lead to, and the associations those associations lead to. And you end up existing in this web of possible memories and perceptions and, uh, and thoughts and feelings that is always in flux, that has a certain different timeline for each aspect of it. Old memories, new, what happened yesterday, what's habitual, what isn't. And what opens up for you with the notion of being free to attend differently uh, is, a, is a much more uh, open and kind of boundless possibility of being uh, different ways with different people in different times and different circumstances. Okay. Thank you. Uh, our next panelist is Lama Willem Miller, who is currently visiting lecturer on Buddhist ministry at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, she is the founder and spiritual director of Natural Dharma Fellowship in Boston and its retreat center, Wonderwell Mountain Refuge in Springfield, New Hampshire. And she's the author of three books, Everyday Dharma, Seven Weeks to Finding the Buddha in You, Essence of Ambrosia, A Guide to Buddhist Contemplations, and the Arts of Contemplative Care, Pioneering Voices in Buddhist Chaplaincy and Pastoral Work. She is an authorized lineage teacher in the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, and she will define the terms prajna paramita. So prajna paramita. So literally it means the going to the other shore of primordial wisdom, something along those lines. But you might more loosely, we could understand it as the perfection of wisdom or, or perfect wisdom. And you know, I really appreciated that, that Andy at the beginning of his, very beginning of the whole our time together, contextualized his presentation as a certain time period, and I'll do the same, because really when we're talking about things like awakening, enlightenment, the path, what we mean by those words is very different depending on the context. So I'm speaking out of 
the Mahayana Buddhist context, also a little bit out of the Vajrayana Buddhist context um, from the beginning of the common era onwards, uh, emerged about that time. So Prajnaparamita comes out of a literature that was in uh, a little bit, um, a time later than the Buddha, the historical Buddha's life. And in that context, Prajnaparamita, perfect wisdom, was really aligned, is aligned with Bodhi, with awakening itself. So a precise notion of what enlightenment is, is it is this Prajnaparamita, this this wisdom, um, an inner quality that is innate, um, but also that needs to be accessed. So we heard that earlier today, also this notion of an, of an already present uh, inner bodhi that Melissa was talking about that is innate and that we can access. There is a lovely description of Prajnaparamita that we find in the mid-length uh, Prajnaparamita text or sutra and it is indescribable inconceivable inexpressible is Prajnaparamita unborn unceasing the essence of space the experience of reflexively aware wisdom to the mother of all Buddhas, I bow down. So that's a four-line uh, description of Prajnaparamita. And I wanted to, to just reflect on that a little bit um, with all of you to uh, get a sense of what the essence of this Prajnaparamita is. You know, Prajnaparamita is really a kind of disillusionment. It actually really is a process of disillusionment. But illusion in the sense of, uh, of maya, that we are all caught in a kind of uh, web of duality and of, of splitting, in fact, uh, of a sort, um, into subject and object that becomes the basis for our suffering in the world. So, uh, indescribable indescribable, beyond language. So this notion that, that wisdom is beyond language can't be expressed. Um, and inconceivable, can't be bound even or understood by an, an intellectual or a, a conceptual act. So we're talking about something non-conceptual, something beyond um, the intellect even and inexpressible. So not only beyond language, but beyond uh, actual ability to communicate it uh, fully. So the only way to know it is to taste it oneself. So a notion of a wisdom that is, is inner and is subjective. Um, unborn, unceasing. So all the way up to this point, you know, it's interesting that, that Bodhi in this context is described more by what it is not than what it is. And that's very common in Prajnaparamita literature. There's a lot of, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. But then occasionally you get, it's like this, the essence of space, which is the next part of the verse. So there is a notion that, that wisdom is, is spacious, 
luminous, open, like the sky, the context, the holding environment in which things arise. Then the experience of reflexively aware wisdom. And in some ways, this gets at the, the, the heart of what Prajnaparamita is. Uh, the term reflexively aware wisdom is rangrik in, in Tibetan, or, or, or sva samviti, um, jnana in Sanskrit. And it really is an interesting term. It means a kind of awareness that is self-aware. And when Polly was talking yesterday about um, how we are not only conscious, but we know that we're conscious, um, I was thinking of how similar that is to this notion of rangrik, um, only in the case of, of, of Prajnaparamita, we're kind of uh, cultivating an ability to see that everything is non-dual with our own awareness, so that kind of a notion. Um, but the last line, to me, in some ways, is the most indicative of, of what is contained in, in wisdom that, that we haven't, I don't know if we've quite touched on yet here, which is this notion, and it's a little bit of a cryptic line, uh, I bow down to the mother of all Buddhas. So Prajnaparamita, this wisdom, is gendered female and is compared to a mother. Um, in our small group just now, we were talking about how um, sometimes the expression is that in the womb of emptiness is, is the, the child of compassion, and that these two have to always be together. They can never be separated out. So this notion that we are talking about how people can sort of be enlightened and then there's no compassion, I, I wonder about what kind of enlightenment that is. It's, it's not necessarily the kind that I have heard spoken of in, in the Mahayana texts where it's, it's an indivisible union of compassion and wisdom. And also, I like this last line because of its indication, it's pointing towards relationality. And in, in uh, Vajrayana practices, this prajnaparamita, this wisdom, actually takes the form sometimes of a full-blown female figure, an actual figure that is depicted and meditated on as an archetype, as a female archetype of wisdom. And there is a practice of relating in a dualistic way to this archetype, um, empowering oneself um, with a relational, in a relational quality with this archetype, with this woman who is an embodiment of wisdom in our imagination. Um, this is called deity yoga. It comes out of the Tibetan tradition. But then um, one dissolves in the end that archetype into oneself and moves into this um, place of spacious awareness. But what I'm bringing up here is that this idea that, that wisdom cannot be accomplished without relationship. And that being uh, deeply uh, a part of this notion of prajnaparamita, that relationship, and somehow all, so many therapists in the room, you know, I feel like you are already deeply in that context, but sometimes in our Buddhist world, we can begin to think we just have to soldier on alone, that we alone become the, the refuge and the island, and that we forget about relationship. But in fact, um, even these really ancient texts are pointing us towards the importance of a relational awakening. Thank you, Willa. Uh, our, our next uh, panelist is Louis Kirshner, a clinical professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a training and supervising analyst 
at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. He was a Fulbright Research Scholar 2010-2011 in, in Ghent, Belgium, and serves on the editorial boards of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, and Frontiers in Psychoanalysis and Neuroscience. He is the author of Having a Life, Self-Pathology self After Lacan, and editor and author of Between Winnicott and Lacan, A Clinical Engagement. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bob. So my task today was to talk about excuse me, real, symbolic, and imaginary. And uh, in other words, to explain the theory of Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalytic model of Jacques Lacan in my 10 minutes. And uh, so I'll talk very fast. Um, so uh, I think I can give you kind of, some of you know something about Lacan and others don't know anything. So I'll be able to disillusion some and <laughs> illusion others. So the real, very briefly, is what is. So the real is like das Ding, if you know phenomenology, the thing in itself. But in another way, the real is the human body. Uh, that would be sort of a, an application of that in Lacan's thinking. Um, the symbolic basically is a semiotic code that governs human relationships, speech, to be brief. It's built after uh, Charles Peirce, Saussure, Levi-Strauss, linguists. It has to do with language and speech. And uh, what is language, after all? So language is basically a lot of noises. It's, it's a lot of sounds that are broken that have differences between different units of sound that make up words which are called signifiers in the Saussure system and Lacan used the word the signifier uh, and he said that a signifier always represents a subject for another signifier that means a signifier is a sign that is used by a subject, a human subject only in an intersubjective framework. We only speak because we belong to a world of other subjects from whom we get our subjectivity. Uh, so there's an arbitrary quality to the signifier. I mean, uh, we call a dog a dog, a perro, a chien, and there's no connection between those sounds. And they do refer to a concept well, without getting too complicated, we could say it's a very similar concept, but maybe not the same in all the languages. But there's a kind of arbitrary nature to that uh, word concept match, and the word slides a little bit loosely over the concept. And uh, uh, um, so the, the signified is not a thing, it's the concept of something. And uh, when we get to abstract words, abstract concepts matching, uh, it gets very slippery indeed. There's a lot of sliding words like awakening or projective identification or wisdom. They don't really mean anything. I mean, they're, 
there's no thing there. They, the only way you can get at them is by other abstract concepts. And we have to string together quite a lot of them to even think we understand each other. That's why we have all this education. Um, so uh, around each one of these signifiers, signified pairs, is kind of a halo of feelings and images. We call that the imaginary. They, the symbolic belongs to a kind of a digital code. It can be interchanged, it's capable of a lot of precision in certain ways. Uh, the imaginary provides substance to the concept, to a vague and ambiguous concept. It gives an appearance of something more. Uh, but it isn't very specific usually, like if I have a concept of an awakening and I show you a picture of the sun, um, that's pretty powerful. It may, may evoke a lot, but you know, what do I mean by it? You don't really know. I have to, you might ask me about it or you might think you knew exactly what I meant and we might have a great rapport, but how long would that rapport last? Sooner or later we'd realize that we had a little bit different take on reality. Uh, and so the imaginary, these images, they come from culture, um, they're subjective, um, they don't have that impersonal quality of language. And speech itself is a chain of signifiers, that's uh, Lacanian language, so there, there are chains of signifiers that are woven into rings that are part of other rings and so on. And, if you're trying to discuss an important concept like what is wisdom, you get into chain after chain, you know, you until the person you're talking to and you have some common references, you sort of can come to some uh, consensual understanding of what you're up to. And a lot of times we're very generous in our uh, understanding of another person. I mean, it's amazing to me all the time how people succeed in communicating. As, you know, as, a, as an analyst, you're aware of how personal speech is, how each word has its own metaphoric and metonomic meaning that isn't obvious. So speech itself, so Lacan talked about empty speech, which, or the wall of words which is a kind of speech that excludes ambiguity and ambivalence. It's repetitive, it's boring, it's, it's what the French call le blah blah. And uh, we've heard a lot of that today because all of us are experts at the blah blah. We've got all these degrees, you know, and we can make it sound good. Uh, an example is, uh, of empty speech is someone who says, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. You know, your executive type, you know. And uh, that's a person who's self-deluded, you know. You, when you hear somebody say that in your office, you know, I know exactly what I mean, I'll tell you what I'm all about. You kind of sit back in your chair and take a deep breath and so on. And uh, you know it's not gonna lead anywhere. There's a delusion of mastery to that kind of empty speech. The person feels like they're in charge of it versus full speech, which is dialectical. It's full of doubts and hesitations and qualifications. Most of us, if we're talking in an honest, open, 
way to a close friend or to our therapist, you know, we say, I feel pretty awakened. Well, not exactly fully awakened, I mean, but compared to some people, I think I probably would be considered awakened, yet I do still, I have a long way to go. You know, it's this back and forth, moving along the line, and it opens up into associations that are like, my father was pretty awakened for, for a man his era, and so on. It gets, it gets complicated. And uh, so that kind of uh, back and forth speech is spontaneous, it moves, it invites dialogue. Uh, and you say, oh, wait a second, you said that, and the person welcomes your intervention, you know, you've heard what they said. Whereas the empty speech, you interrupt them and, wait, I'll tell you what I mean by it, you know, don't interrupt me, you know. And there are patients like that and who uh, don't feel very safe with you probably, or they're used to being that way all the time. But in, in most of uh, life experience, from this perspective anyway, um, there's an oscillation between empty and full speech. We, we, we use cliches and set uh, little formulas we've got and uh, professional ones and we need them. They enable the speaking subject to navigate through the minefield of everyday life. You know, we can resort to these little formulas. Uh, and the quality of our speech, um, this is very oversimplified, of course, um, but it, um, it depends a lot on the interlocutor. Whom are we speaking with? And um, the interlocutor, who is that? You know, it's another subject. And who is that other subject? Well, it's a real person. It's somebody I imagine, my imaginary person. It's somebody in a symbolic role, like a psychotherapist. I go into an office, a person has a diploma. I start to talk to them about very personal things. I would not talk to most people I met on the subway that way, because he's symbolically somebody I'm authorized to speak with. On the other hand, as I look at him, he looks a little complacent. He's got that oriental rug. He's probably not my kind of person. So already I'm starting to close down. So we're always opening and closing, and oscillating, and it depends a lot on the way we are with that interlocutor who can help us expand what we can say and open up more, be more free in our speech, or constrict the dialogue down very tightly. Um, you know, I think most psychiatric speech today is pretty constricted down. You're asked a series of questions that pin you down, you'll end up being diagnosed so you can be prescribed something. So that, I would say, is the turn of uh, psychiatry toward a, a system of empty speech. So all these three uh, registers, the real, the symbolic, the imaginary, as I say, they're all part of being a human subject. They're woven together. They're always together. You can't separate them. But there are situations where maybe they, one aspect shines out more clearly. Um, in the case of, am I finished? Uh, Just about. I think I'll stop there then. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Well, this, this has been interesting for me. I hope it's been interesting for you because 
<clears throat> we've got uh, some very different ideas of, of what uh, the definition, the meaning of the term illusion is. Uh, and if I can try to summarize some of it without doing too much violence to any of them, which I realize is a vain hope. Um, uh, Dr. Waldinger uh, talked about uh, equanimity as a kind of loss of the illusion of, uh, of some sort of perfection and a positive facing and accepting everything in life uh, without striving after an illusion which, uh, because of its illusory nature, is just going to make us unhappy if we strive after it. Uh, Dr. Langen had a, a very different take on illusion, uh, that illusion is a, is a sort of mode of being, and please correct me if I get this wrong, which I'm sure I'm doing, uh, and it goes for everybody. Um, illusion is a mode of being, and that one, one goes from one state, which is illusory, to another state, which is also illusory, but maybe better like uh, Samuel Beckett, you know, try, fail, try again, fail again, try again, fail better. Um, Willa Miller was talking about an illusion as uh, duality and the Prajma Paramita, a state in which uh, the uh, uh, illusion of duality has fallen away, a state which cannot be described and I'm not sure can be achieved in this mortal world, but for, you can comment on that. And uh, finally, uh, Louis Kirshner told us about uh, the illusions of certainty, I believe, and the, the idea of, uh, of uh, loss of uh, being able to be certain and definite and precise about things that are really important in life is just an illusion. So. Having, having said that, and I hope not mangled too many things too much, uh, I'd like to open up to the panel to respond to each other for a moment. Well, um, I'd like to just say one thing about Willa's, to relate to Willa's talk about the beyond language. So just to connect it with what I said, so um, the way we think of the real is it's defined as beyond language, what is in, in unrepresented, inconceivable. So when we're trying to describe our experience, which is partly in the real, uh, there's part that's always left over. That no matter how much time I spend explaining the, what I'm feeling or what my you know, personal experience is, there's a part of it that, I, that won't be represented in words or in images that's leftover real. And that leftover real is a part of us. It's part of who we are. It's why it's part of our subjectivity, but we, it can't be explicated in a rational way. I don't know if that fits at all with what you're saying. I think it fits, yeah. I mean, I, I think, right, this is the, the dilemma of poets, you know, that, that how do you capture what you're actually experiencing, and and can that even be be done? Yeah. So I think that's very similar to the idea of prajnaparamita. Yeah, that things that are all of our experiences beyond beyond expression, um, but 
but it is being applied in this case to a to a subtle quality of our awareness, and that and that it's not possible to describe. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just wanted to to. Um, build on that about, Willa, what you talked about in terms of the inexpressibility. Um, and then, Lou, you were saying that there's this leftover part. And I think that for many of us, what practice does is it turns all of that around. And you begin to see that actually that leftover part is actually most of it. And that this t up in this tiny little corner, there's what we describe with language. And that it's that turning around so that you see the vastness of inexpressible experience that is really, at least for me, the heart of practice. I'm reminded of what Einstein said about trying to use the tools of science to know reality. He said, it's like trying to know what the sound of a symphony is by throwing a piano down the stairs. And I think our language, trying to describe our being human in this world uh, with language is sort of like trying to know reality by throwing a piano down, <laughs> trying to know the sound of a symphony that way. So it's, it's this sense that there's so much more that's inexpressible than, than what we can capture with the blah, blah. And that applies to others too, right? Yeah. So noticing that in yourself, then all of a sudden, oh, the other is now a sacred mystery. Yes. I thought I could describe who they were. I thought I could analyze them, but in fact, and, and that, that dovetails nicely with this idea of an unconscious, I think, in certain ways, that there's a mystery to others, and um, yeah. So it, it strikes me, actually, that we're all driving at the same thing, mm -hmm. that there's a sense that um, any reality you can define and nail down is lacking something, and so that would extend at least I think, I think in the way I was driving at, to senses of self. That any me who was walking around is, is uh, sort of the version of the moment, but that the, the still photograph doesn't catch the movie, or, the, uh, uh, or any aspect maybe implies, but never can catch the entirety of what's going on, uh, particularly in, you know, if you push it to the extent that um, any I is a kind of a, a version of, or an illusion too. Necessary, useful, but you know, uh, you know, it, it's like the token. You you know, you need a token to get on the subway, and uh, that'll uh, give you a ride for a while. But then, time to get off. So that same thing. Uh, it, it seems to me there's a, a, a connection between what's developing in this panel and the one uh, and, and what was developing on the panel this morning in terms of the, the ethical uh, dimension of practice, psychoanalytic and, and Buddhist practice, that what one of the, um, one of the ideas that came out of that was the, the idea of uh, a kind of respect for the uh, autonomy of the other person and a kind of willingness to uh, relate in such a way and as far as possible uh, such that uh, 
this, this autonomy is not infringed upon, but it's uh, respected and, and acknowledged. And I'm wondering if uh, anyone has any, any thoughts about what's uh, evolving here about the un unknowability of certain things, the mystery of other people and the mystery of, of the world and this ethical stance of allowing a distance, allowing a space between yourself and, and the other person. Too saturated. Well, you know, from I think as, as as the analysts know, I mean, psychoanalysts don't believe that the other person is knowable, the way we could know how you know a Chevrolet is put together and works or something, because a person is is not a, a thing that can be known like that. There's there's too and so. Uh, but there are. I mean, that's a pretense that we have in our currently advanced society of, of that, you know, we try to define things more and more systematically, categorically, as though they can be known. That's what kind of the illusion of the psychiatry I was criticizing promote, promulgates, I think. Yeah. I think it's good to, to work from the position of not knowing. I mean, the Lacanian analyst is, an, is said to be, according to Lacan, in the position of supposed to know, the subjects of supposed knowledge is the correct. The, the patient, you attribute to your therapist knowledge about you. It doesn't even have to be a conscious formulation, but just by talking to them, and they're, they're qualified and so on, they're gonna know something about you. You grant to them a certain wisdom and uh, if they think they have that, they're, they're in trouble and you're in trouble. <laughs> can, can, you, can you explain how that would intersect with the idea of knowing another is how you win the self that we heard earlier today? Um, well, you, you know yourself through your way of interacting with other people, not, you know, not by being be, be, by yourself contemplating your navel, so to speak. I don't think, you know, to be caricatural about everything, you know, and, and we don't give it up. I mean, uh, poetry is, was Lowell's, what's Amy Lowell's phrase, raids on the inexpressible, I think, something like that. I mean, we, it's very important to us to try to, to, to get to know more about other people we care about. We shouldn't give up the effort, you know. It's, it's all important, in a way, it's all we have is that tenuous way of trying to connect, you know, so that we're not a, knowing that we're not a solitary subject, but we are subjects that only belongs embedded in, you know, world of other subjects. Is that, I don't know, <laughs> what you say? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, it's even more important than that. It's kind of uh, uh, like a basis of ethics to allow the other person to be unknown and to realize that, uh, this is Emmanuel Levinas, I guess is what I'm thinking of, but allowing the other person to, uh, to be, you know, a subjectivity, there's a total mystery and not only just is like an object of potential exploration or someone you might get to know a little better, but instead um, someone who puts you in this I think the Levinas phrase is, you're in the docket, you know, the judge is there, you know, this is a serious matter. 
you have to confront this other person or approach this other person with full responsibility for not being imperialist, for not being harmful, for not being the, dis the destroyer of that subjectivity and for ripping that person into some person who isn't really an object or a thing that can be killed a, uh, or dismissed or not, not noticed, right? Instead, you're in this like really dire position of um, I, have to, I have to approach the other. I have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to um, try to know what that subjectivity is through my own subjectivity. And uh, that's the only way that there can be this meeting, uh, a, a, a kind of a transcendent meeting, where it gets, where, oh, finally you yourself are released from this prison house of self. You know, there's a, there's a way where the grip is not so tight, the repetitions aren't so compulsive. And instead it's like, glad to meet you. you know, who are you? So there's that shift. I, I, I want to just make a brief question before we go on. Uh, this this uh, practice of, of uh, non-infringement, non-intervention non that we're talking about, not pretending, you know, not intruding on the subjectivity of either the patient or the, or the student, as the case may be, how well do we succeed in that? Is that a... You want to? Well, I wanted. Okay. I think it fits. I, um, what I wanted to say was that that in fact we don't necessarily want to succeed in that entirely. That there's, that, that this is sort of a koan. This is a kind of edge that we work at, where in fact one of the most powerful experiences that someone has in therapy and with a spiritual teacher is feeling known, is feeling seen, and in fact one of the ways that. I can bring people to tears without meaning to in a first session is if I ask the question, do you feel like anyone has ever known you? And you will, I mean, people who have just been totally put together will break down. And that the, there's something about the experience of feeling known, of feeling seen that's so powerful for people. And at the same time, we have to hold this lightly and cannot presume that we truly know who this being is. And so we work at, I think we work at that edge all the time uh, in therapy and in spiritual practice. Yeah, I mean, patients will say, you know, you understand me, I think. And you'll say, well, could you, not quite, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't buy that, but, uh, and the person might say after a while, I feel really understood by you, but you've never fed back to them any way that mm -hmm. they could put in the words, the understanding. It's a, it is a paradox, and mm -hmm. Cohen is a good way to put it. I like that. There, there are practices in Buddhism where we practice being seen, and in those practices have largely been, or for many years, they were marginalized by American Buddhists, Western Buddhists, and those are the practices where you're working with a, a figure like the Buddha, uh, um, this Buddha Anusmriti practice, um, receiving, being seen by the Buddha, receiving love from the Buddha, receiving blessings from the Buddha. I mean, often those practices are couched in ritual and in chanting and in, in um, all these trappings, but underneath all of that, there is this impulse to be seen and this power of being seen. And I think it's actually, um, 
It's been an unfortunate uh, falling away of some of those practices in the West where we stripped it down to, oh, it's about mindfulness, it's about meditation, and we've lost some of those relational aspects of Buddhism um, in some, I mean, in some communities, and I think there's an effort in some communities also to reclaim some of those practices because of the recognition that there is a power to being seen and witnessed that we can actually call that up at will and experience the healing and the and the also the uh, the security and the relaxation and and the um, a kind of heightening of self awareness through the eyes of an imagined other. Just uh, how well do you think we succeed at simply seeing somebody else and? reflecting to them what we see, as opposed to uh, somehow feeling the urge and even acting on the urge to improve them, to change them in a way that we regard as therapeutic. Um, is it possible to be in that kind of engagement with somebody without engaging in that kind of I don't know what to call it, a, a, a failure of, of uh, detachment, I suppose you could call it, or a failure of, uh, of uh, allowing someone their space, but really doing something uh, with the best of intentions. We think it's therapeutic. We think they need to go there. They're not going there by themselves, so we give them a little push to make them feel a certain way. Yeah, I, I think we know some things. But what, what I, I was thinking that when I was going to raise the question, is it that we want to, that we want to be known or we want to reveal ourselves, or is it that we want someone else to know us, to want to know us? Isn't that what we really want? Can I, can, can I, I, I just have to bring in my research life for a minute. We spent some time studying couples, and we um, looked at both you know, we videotaped them having an argument, and then we asked them to tell us what they were feeling at different moments and what they thought their partner was feeling. And what we discovered was that, particularly for women, that they were really happy if they saw that their partner was trying to know them, and that it didn't matter if the partner got the right answer or not. <laughs> so empirically, it holds up. I want to I want to open up the uh, uh, questioning and, and the discussion to the audience, uh, but, but before I do that, uh, I want to uh, remind everyone that one of the charges of this particular panel uh, has to do with the the disillusionment that uh, arises from the um, teacher or psychoanalyst committing a serious ethical violation. Uh, uh, we've been talking about illusion, disillusionment, but one of the uh, historically one of the one of the reasons this conference was structured the way it is is because that's become an issue recently. It's been an issue for a long time in psychoanalysis. It's become an issue recently in the in the Buddhist community, and uh, so we will open up the discussion. But I would like uh, everyone to kind of keep in mind that that problem and try to address that problem. So I see we have a volunteer. Um, so I wondered if you could focus, especially, I'd like to hear from anybody on this, 
on the issue of breakdown in the kind of relationship in which people think they're being seen or known. Uh, and they, you know, from a therapeutic point of view, we talk about impingements or enactments that break that trust. And then how does the trust reform or redevelop? Uh, in uh, a Buddhist environment, in a Sangha or whatever, the break in trust may not be a therapeutic break. It may be another kind of break. It may be a break that breaks with the person's spiritual practice, or that breaks with a relationship with a teacher or another Sangha member. So I'd like to hear your views about what happens then, and how does one continue, uh, whether it's therapeutic, to develop the therapeutic relationship after a serious challenge, and I don't mean here an ethical challenge necessarily, but where the therapist does something totally <coughs> stupid, unfeeling, or whatever, um, it seems to be just exactly what the patient was dreading from the beginning. And uh, then in the Buddhist situation, what happens when there's a, a big break in the community or with the teacher? Grace, did you have a question? Okay. I have a great example of that. Okay. So, <clears throat> there's a uh, mid 20 year old woman who's uh, very unsure of herself, quite quiet and withdrawn, sheepish, um, not many friends, you know, pretty sad, goes to therapy. Um, and her therapist, uh, you know, gets the history sort of and is friendly to her and moves along and so on and so forth. And they see each other once a week for about six months. Um, at which point, early in the session, oh, he's maybe a little tired, but he calls her by the wrong name. She's she's dumbfounded. She can't believe he did this. Bursts into tears, you know, and then gets angry. He's, you know, crying with him. He feels terrible, you know. What has he done, and so on. All right. So this could be the end of the therapy, but really, you can look at look look at it uh, when there is possibility for repair as the start of the therapy, because he's acknowledging that I was bored to tears, and she's acknowledging that that. This kind of betrayal is the thing that's driven her to be the way she is. And so the question then comes up, with the reduction of the, of the power relationship, it becomes collaborative. And, and what it opens up is the possibility, can you and I still work together? And if we can, you know, we have to acknowledge how we're feeling, you know, how this, how this is gonna spin itself out, and it's like, all of a sudden, there's two more real, if you will, people who are in the room together. And so that would be the, you know, the one. The other, of course, is that it falls apart and, um, and the patient, oh, let's say, goes borderline and goes on the internet and ruins your reputation and you have to change fields. So, you know, <laughs> take your pick. There was a question back here. Hi, uh, um, uh, I'm Joe Hodgkin. I'm a medical student over at BU. Um, so this is not about teacher transgressions, but uh, I thought after having uh, uh, Lana Miller and uh, Dr. Kirshner explain um, the, the 
question of Harmony, Harmony to and Black Collins, uh, uh, three realities, uh, one after another. I, I just want to ask, um, so um, that the, the similarities between kind of uh, Madhyamaka, Prashna Paramita, and uh, deconstruction sort of post-structuralist uh, uh, attitudes towards language uh, have been drawn together before, and, and I think there's a very apt comparison. Um, and uh, George Dreyfus in uh, The Sound of Two Hands Clapping um, says that he, he found that um, uh, Tibetan monks never encountered the sort of problems of nihilism or depression or kind of total undermining of their uh, reality that uh, philosophers in the West do when they were working with these uh, deconstructive technologies because of the soteriological framework that it was taking place in, um, sort of reflected in the Heart Sutra, you know, uh, no suffering, no attachments, no, uh, no nirvana, etc. And if you reflect on this, then you will reach enlightenment. Um, so I, I'm just really curious about, because um, I know less about the psychoanalytic perspective, um, but uh, what kind of um, protections are there against having this, you know, you're deconstructing and you're figuring out the holes in the language and then you deconstruct the stage that you're standing on and kind of everything falls apart. I, I'm really curious to hear the uh, psychoanalytic perspective on that. Mm. That would be for you. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> well, um, that was a very good summary. Uh, well, you know, I think uh, not every, some people, you know, need to have stuff put on. I mean, Andrew and I had a little group, and he made this metaphor of a sundae, and you put whipped cream and another ice cream and a sauce, and and some people need to have a little extra whipped cream and maybe even a cherry that was missing, you know. And your job is more to try to provide something for them that they never had, you know. That's a different, that's a little different from a classic or even a Lacanian psychoanalysis, you know. You, you're in a different posture, I would say. I mean, and maybe a lot of people, there's a mixture, you know, and you can't just, uh, take a position of disillusioning them of who they are as, you know, you have to accept who they are and appreciate who they are. I mean, that's a, it's a complicated stance, but I, I think, um, uh, but in the end, I think to, for somebody to feel like you do appreciate them, but you help them see that some of these things uh, have other implications, they aren't quite what they thought, is usually it comes as a great relief or a freedom, <laughs> feeling of freedom, I think, uh, if it's done right. If it's done clumsily, it's an injury. A patient, may, you may lose a patient. I mean, if you're really inept or, or just make a bad blunder, you some, don't always get the chance to repair it, as you were saying, you know. I think uh, you, hopefully the patient will give you a chance to say something great like, like that. You know, we're two human beings. Let's look at what went on. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, and in the context of Madhyamaka, which is the, the kind of debate that you're talking about where you're essentially deconstructing all of reality and then you're somehow okay with that and how Dreyfus was saying that was possible because of the soteriological context I would, I would add that that context includes a whole training in loving kindness and compassion that is really deep and long term in bodhicitta, in this notion of um, 
the warm heart. And I think in the context of that warm heart and that, and that sense of loving connection that's been developed by those monks for many, many, many years before they go into this uh, full deconstruction and also has been a part of their family life, then, then it's possible to hold this. And I was just wondering if, if sort of the hidden, maybe this would be the question for you, Lou, if maybe the hidden reason that a, a, a Lacanian deconstruction could work is because of the relationship with the therapist who is a safe context and that somehow in, in, in a, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of connection and of trust. I don't know, I'm asking. I'm wondering if that's part of what keeps, what makes it possible to do that work. Yeah, you do it for love, I mean, right? Mm. The question that I, that I wanted to bring up was about the importance of disillusion and disillusionment in both processes, uh, the idealization of the therapist and the disillusionment of that seems to me to be part of the path of healing. And in the same way, the idealization of the teacher or the dharma in some way coming out of that stage. So I think it, it may be uh, recognized as part of the path in both mm -hmm. Can, can I comment on that? I know I just talked, but I just wanted to echo that and, and, and that um, having been a part of uh, a couple of communities where there have been transgressions um, and seen that very close firsthand, that it was one of the greatest gifts of my life, actually, to, to have that experience of disillusionment um, and that that's actually, you know, interestingly, I used to think there was something abnormal about that and something wrong, and yes, of course, but um, having been in the Dharma now for 35 years and many friends who have been in the Dharma for decades have discovered that I don't have a single friend who has been in the Dharma for decades who has not had a major disillusionment episode. And so I almost have begun to think it's an inevitable part of the path, that things have to fall apart for us to figure out where the refuge is. Mm. And take our responsibility. Yeah. Mm. Have Own our peace. Mm. Well, and, you know, I think, um, I mean, Kohut is, was probably the clearest articulator of this idea of optimal disillusionment, the idea that in a, in a psychoanalysis and in a psychotherapy, that there has to be this process of, of coming up short and suddenly seeing that your therapist, your analyst is human and screws up. And, does, and, and, and often, you know, as Polly, you were saying, does exactly the thing that you can't stand, exactly the thing that's re-traumatizing. And because we evoke that in each other in these diets. And that what we hope for is that there's enough of a connection that a repair can be made. It can't always be made, but some people argue that it's in those moments of repair that the real work happens. And, and actually, in infant research, what they notice is that when infants and mothers get disconnected, it's the moments of reconnection that are very uh, structure-building, psyche-building, if you will. And so th this idea of disruption and repair as being essential is something certainly that's come a lot more into the psychotherapy literature these days. I wonder if the panel would comment on in terms of ethical transgressions and, and broken relationships, the role of anger. 
Sorry, the role of anger, you said? Yes, I think anger has been brought up, I think, for the first time once and passed through. And it feels a little bit like an elephant in the room. How do we work with that? Well, uh, maybe there's an element of betrayal in terms of these instances. Not just disillusionment, but a feeling of betrayal. Yeah. So how do you work with that? Either in practice or in therapy? Uh, the, 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 I'll, take, I'll abuse my position as, as moderator to respond to that. The, the, Maybe I'll, I'll say first. I'm a Zen teacher and also a psychotherapist and worked in this area for a good many years. And it seems to be an area that's often lost over if it's mentioned at all. And yet, at the same time, it seems to be right at the heart of resolving some of these issues and our own experience of it on conscious and unconscious levels. I, I think one element, if you look at, at malpractice suits, when doctors are sued for malpractice, one of the things that Im impresses one is that uh, doctors can really get away with a lot if the patient feels that it's done in good faith, mm -hmm. if the patient feels that it's done with good intention. Uh, if the patient feels the doctor is mistreating them, disrespecting them, hostile toward them, uh, watch out, because one false step and, and uh, you're, you're a dead duck. So the repair, I mean, the conditions for repair of this disruption, I think, it may have something to do with the underlying feeling of, well, was it hostile, was the disruption intentional, was it hostile, was it a sign of negligence, uh, disregard, disrespect? So Barbara has a good question. Yeah. I'm going to take a big risk here. I'm going to take a big risk here because I think that anger has gotten a bad rap. Anger directly expressed is uh, a way in which a person asserts don't cross over this line. It's a very helpful thing for us all to know where our anger is. And I don't think I'm talking about hostility. I'm not talking about pickle anger, but I'm talking about what Winnicott talks about when he says, you come into being through protest. And I just would like to give anger its due. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. uh, who has the microphone? I'm actually thinking about a time when I transgressed with a student, um, and, and, and the student became enraged with me. The transgression was that I made a promise, and then I changed my mind. In, the, in terms of our relationship, his, his rage was huge and allowed us to have a different relationship. But the first step, and I think this is true in all of our psychotherapeutic relationships and teaching, Relationships. I had to bear his anger. I had to wit. I had to bear witness to his anger. I had to allow him to be angry. It's not that I had any choice, uh, <laughs> but but it, it it meant it was because I myself had of course worked with anger on the other side. I think it's I th I, I think anger is actually something that transforms naturally into wisdom if it's given enough space. Hmm. 
It's a clarity, a cleanness, a heat. Uh, it was very hard to bear it, but bearing it was knowing that it wasn't a bad thing. It was something natural, normal, healthy. It felt horrible to be aimed at me, but, uh, but I knew not to take it personally. I knew that I had to uh, wait until he could hear my apology for the transgression. In my mind, I had to take it as seriously as he did. At first, I didn't. It seemed I just changed mm -hmm. my mind. In his view, it was enormous. And I know that that's been very important when I felt transgressed upon or betrayed to, to have the other person say, yeah, yeah, that's really terrible. That's really hard. So there's something about bearing uh, whatever arises, grief, anger, fear, uh, these, these hot emotions. And then waiting until they naturally transform into wisdom and compassion and equanimity, which I think is what they do. I'm sorry. I think Josh was first. Well, well, I'll give it back to you now. But just because I didn't want to pass over what Barbara said, and because you added to it, and you didn't quite get on it, and I know Lawson also. Um, anger, I think, is misunderstood in Buddhism. That's been my experience of it. Um, the Greeks took it as a moral emotion, that it was a boundary setter, because the animals don't get angry. They get aggressive. So it actually prevents aggression. It prevents fighting. It prevents passive aggression, the withdrawal. If it's done well, it sets a boundary, and it does not accuse the other person of something. It says essentially, stop doing this. I find it intolerable. And if it's used well, it's really a great sort of manju's resort type of thing. If it's used badly, it's often confused with aggression and begins to be an attack on somebody. And my, my sense is that in my Buddhist years, that discrimination was never made, that that was made more through my psychoanalytic work and then also through the research that was done on anger by somebody. That's right. So, you know, I just wanted to add that and then give it back to Josh. Was <laughs> so I, I actually wanted to pick up uh, a, uh, the, the, the theme of dis disillusionment uh, as part of the path. Um, my, my first uh, teacher in Zen was enormously charismatic. Um, and, and, and actually, I was enormously relieved when I, I read in Irving Yalom's Yall, uh, Existential Psychotherapy uh, a description of an encounter with uh, Fritz Perls, who would always tell his students, take his patients, take responsibility, take responsibility. And this was actually the same mantra of, of my teacher. And what Yalom pointed out was that this uh, doesn't take into account the rest of the uh, student, the patient's experience, which is the encounter with an enormously charismatic, wise old man who proclaims non-verbally, and I will tell you precisely how, where, and why to do it. <laughs> and uh, and my my second teacher, the one who who uh, from whom I was authorized to teach, when I first met him, he was not at all like what I thought as a teacher. And, and I actually had him on probation in my head for a really long time. Does this guy have anything going on at all? And, uh, 
and there's a there's a teaching story in Zen, a koan, in which the, the, the master says, uh, during the golden age of China, he says, don't you know that in all of China, there are no Zen teachers? And the, and the, the questioner says, what do you mean? What are you talking about? There's monasteries all over the place. There's people, there's <coughs> there's all of this happening. And the teacher says, I don't say there's no Zen. And, and, and for me, with, with, this, with, with, with my teacher, what I realized was it, it actually isn't about him at all. Uh, and it isn't about does he meet or not meet my expectations. It's actually, and, it, and with my charismatic teacher, it wasn't about becoming more like him. It was both of these were about becoming fully, fully, fully more like myself. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for me, disillusion in, in, in those two modes was actually very valuable. Yeah, I just want to pick up on what Polly was alluding to in the re research on, on anger that parents did. Um, what he found that was kids got angry when they were interfered with, when they were transgressed upon. And they would get angry in order to take care of that particular situation, and that would be the end of it, okay? So somebody takes their toy, you hit them or something, and it's over for them. That's the way kids are. But for the kids who were deprived, for the kids who did not have a relationship that was sustaining and resonated with. Okay? For those kids, there was an active looking to be not angry, but hostile. And hostility and anger are not the same thing at all. Okay? And the extreme situations, they weren't just hostile, they were sadistic. Okay? And those were the kids who were deprived, not the kids who had what we call a, an affective resonance, an empathic resonance with, with their experienced states. So, you know, I, I think it speaks to the point that anger is something that people use for boundaries, for specific situations. I think it's a positive thing. I think we are all born with the capacity for anger, and it becomes anger if well responded to by the environment. And I think hostility we are not born with. It comes from deprivation, and sadism is, is even worse. And those are the experiences that are really destructive, not anger. Yeah, a couple, I want to just point out a couple of things about, about Buddhism, kind of picking up on some things that Willis said. Um, first, about anger. In the Vajrayana Tantra, anger is used hugely. Um, and it's transformed into wisdom. I don't want to say any more about it, it's, it's a complicated thing. Very I can't important. hear you. In the Vajrayana, in the, which is the Tibetan practice in particular, anger is heavily used and transformed into wisdom. And that's a big subject. I don't want to say much more about it. But I want to get back to disillusionment. I just want to recite a line of a very common um, Tibetan prayer. It's not Vajrayana. It's what's called Sutrakana, which is kind of the, the ordinary path. Having ceased to view this unbearable prison of cyclic existence as a pleasure goal, may I raise the victory banner of freedom, the treasure of extraordinary beings. And this is a meditation that Tibetan monks, I think of all lineages, do something like this on a regular basis, on an intense basis, powered by concentration of a high level. In other words, they deliberately induce within themselves this profound disillusion. 
And that's what actually powers liberation from that. So it's so comparing it to psychoanalysis, there's obviously a similarity, but there's obviously also a difference. It's all cyclic existence. It's not just my relationships, my ego, my expectations of other people and so on. It's all of cyclic existence down to the very concepts, perceptions, and sensations that I have. And, and so I see it as a kind of an interesting parallel. Not obviously they're they're very different, but it seems to me there's something similar going on here. That's Yes, sir. Yes, without having... Well, wait for the mic. Without having uh, done any uh, um, extended systematic study of uh, Buddhist ideas about enlightenment, but done, done some informally, and listening to this panel, um, it put me in mind of some, some a, a correspondence that has often fascinated me uh, between uh, homonyms of the word bearing, as in bearing, which uh, Bob talked about, of bearing, suffering, and not taking urgent measures to try to escape from it, but to stay with it, bearing as in B-E-A-R. And then what Lou talked about in terms of open speech, and open speech involves bearing, B-A-R-I-N-G, bearing myself, being somehow a welcoming environment, a truly interested environment for the other person, bearing themselves, so as to encourage true dialogue rather than blah, blah. And that those are two of the essential kinds of themes that I hear um, running throughout a lot of the discussions of the search for uh, enlightenment. David. if there are ways that, um, Bob, you mentioned kind of the, was it relaxed in you know, yeah. Buddhism, and then maybe for psychotherapy, I'm not sure, the part, you know, where you fix. Sorry, could you speak up a little? Or is that working?
You know, I think what you're talking about is the difference between facing toward and constantly trying to face away. And I think that's what all this is. It's what it's about in analysis. It's what the Buddha was talking about. And all I have to do is watch TV to see how they want us to face away. They want us to get this facial cream because that's really going to do it. That's going to prevent aging. We don't have to get old, right? They want us to, you know, there's so many ways in which they're telling us, no, look at this. And don't look at, you know, don't look within, don't face whatever comes up. And I think this is never going to be, I think neither of these things we're talking about here is ever going to be popular because the other is so seductive. Well, we've we've been talking about disillusionment primarily in a in a positive way. Um, the, uh, uh, the the little vignette about uh, forgetting the patient's name is is a is a, a a very interesting vignette because it's the kind of thing that could lead to a breakthrough, or it could lead to a breakup, and. It's unintentional. Uh, I think intentionally we wouldn't get a patient's name wrong just to sort of move things along a little. Uh, but fall asleep. <laughs> falling asleep, that's better, I think. Or falling asleep, yeah. But um, th th these things do happen, and they, they can be very important, but they can also be quite traumatic. And I think one of the things that uh, I would like uh, like us to address is, uh, well, what are the conditions that make it a breakthrough, and what are the conditions that make it a break up or a breakdown? Uh, what about uh, um, disillusionment that's traumatic? Uh, how do we how do we address that? It happens. I think we we really can't have the good kind of disillusionment without risking the bad kind, yes. and it's going to happen. So, is there anything we can do about that to kind of minimize the damage without getting rid of the good disillusionment? I think Melissa said uh, what the way we can do that. It, if we can do it. And the biggest thing is, we're all born with feelings. All of us are born with feelings, but we learn to not own them. So there's another word I'd like to bring into this conversation, which is to re-own what belongs to you. And that does a great deal. It's not a simple apology, but it's truly owning your mistakes and thereby learning from them. Just to follow up um, on the story that I told earlier with my first Zen teacher, who was a charismatic teacher, like Josh's teacher, when he transgressed, he could not acknowledge it. He could not do what Barbara was yes. just talking about. It was impossible for him. And the pain of that caused a rupture. So that was not a positive disillusionment. It became a positive disillusionment through uh, you know, my own healing and the, and the contact with other people who put it in a new frame. 
but he himself couldn't do it. He, he was just characterologically, it was impossible for him. Mm. And, and I think that's why it's so important for all of us as teachers and analysts, and I know this is supposed to happen, to be mentored and to uh, be taught how to be, how to, I love the bear and bear. Mm -hmm. that that's exactly what this whole, uh, that's the job description. Yeah. Yeah. Um, say something. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, um, I think it might be worth mentioning the psychoanalyst Sandor Ferenzi, um, and he wrote a famous paper called The Confusion of Tongues about Sexual Abuse of Children, and one of his points was that uh, maybe the most traumatic aspect in some of these cases was the denial of the perpetrator of what they had done, even blaming it on the, on the victim. And I think we're in a whole culture of that now. And I think even in psychoanalysis, uh, we're still struggling with the betrayals of trust in our psychoanalytic society here in Boston by a few prominent people. And I, at least two of them have still uh, failed to come to grips with the fact that they committed a, a major ethical violation. They, in one, in one case, are still blaming their patient because the patient was a professional, so it wasn't like abuse because that person was uh, qualified to make a decision or not to join them in this adventure, yeah. So I think it's a really major issue. Cuts across a lot of things. Okay. Um, I think I think that disillusionment um, is experienced as betrayal, whether it's a betrayal of your own ideals or idealization. Um, the disillusionment, it, something that that you expected or you held or you assumed, um, is no longer there and. Um, the kind of disillusionment that, that you described, that that patient experienced as, as a betrayal. And and I think that um, Melissa said it, and you know, other people have said it, but I think that really um, in that moment, being able to acknowledge that however unintentional, um, there was a betrayal um, is important. And I, I also think, though, that it's important because what, what can come of it also is that the, in the case of, of therapy in particular, not when a person has been transgressed against necessarily, but in, in that kind of betrayal, the person who held the illusion and was disillusioned also has the opportunity to examine what their illusions were. And that's also mm. where healing can take place. So I, I think both are necessary. Both sides have to have to understand what their role um, and in the betrayal was, so that they can both heal. I'd, I'd like to underline that. You know, I think that that's it's the owning idea, which is really that the therapist in that situation could say, "I can put myself in your shoes. I can know what you're feeling like." And so there's a link through that crossover from one position to another, and also revealing. Uh, could hardly uh, avoid doing so, uh, his own embarrassment and shame at having forgotten their name. And so this is like, oh, look, now we've, we've had an experience together, which we both own. And, and to speak to what you just said, 
the, the bigger problem comes when that betrayal is denied. Because part of what we were talking about before was wanting to be seen and wanting to be witnessed. And your disillusion, that disillusionment or that, that betrayal also wants to be seen and wants to be witnessed. And so the denial of that is then compounds the damage. Absolutely. Harold. And what is it in the Buddhist tradition, especially as it's uh, taking place in modern America, that we hold, that is, we are so most illusioned about, that uh, one who is enlightened, with their quotes, um, is perfect and can't make any error and couldn't uh, harm another person. So, um, we have illusions about that, um, well, let's say, I may not be able to reach enlightenment in this lifetime. Um, we have all of these, you know, accretions of illusions that we, you know, build along the course of our practice. And um, I think it's not only that we need to attend to the act of the illusion, uh, the disillusion event, but the underpinnings of that, as you were saying, that what, what we hold to be um, an enlightened person. Um, someone earlier yesterday asked, I don't remember exactly, who here is a Buddha? or who here is an arhat, or has met one. And um, so that's a, you know, something that we all want to meet a Buddha, I think, if we're a Buddhist practitioner. Um, and is there not potentially a setup for a disillusionment there? Just around, around the betrayal issue, um, I think that one of the most important pieces of healing in a community, if there has been a transgression, is storytelling, or rather being able to have a forum where people can share, either small and private, or some sort of situation where people can actually share their pain with other people, um, that that becomes a, a really important healing modality and in Buddhist uh, communities you know there is has been some int intention to bring that in around council practice and Zen communities and um, as a way of working with these kinds of um, more storytelling formats but I, I did just want to say that I feel that that's one of the ways that psychotherapy and psychoanalysis can help Buddhism so much is around those, this valuing of stories and the valuing of the particularity of human pain and suffering and how um, somehow going through the fire of, of processing um, the past can be a way of liberating ourselves or unburdening ourselves from it, which is something that, that Buddhism does in a hidden way, but not in a very uh, outward way. It does it through, through narratives, through um, life stories. Stories are there. Um, models are there, but, but psychotherapy is a wonderful complement to, to Buddhism that way. Frank? Yeah, um, I just, oh, thank you. Um, hey, uh, one thing that, that troubles me about the discussion is there seems to be 
an equation of disillusionment and betrayal. And I think it's really important to distinguish uh, all betrayals are disillusionments, but not all disillusionments are betrayals. Okay? We become disillusioned with our therapists, and I presume with our Buddhist teachers, uh, all the time, right? Every time I make a mistake, my patient is a little bit disillusioned with me. I don't call it a betrayal. That's okay. It's a betrayal when we can't talk about it. It's a betrayal when it goes outside the analytic process, okay? We assume that in analysis we can talk about whatever happens. So I make mistakes all the time, okay? My patients may see it or they may not, but in any case, when we talk about it, okay, there is a healing that goes on that sometimes really moves things very much forward, okay? Sometimes a little bit forward, sometimes a great deal, right? But a betrayal is something very different. A betrayal is a very strong word, okay? And that means I have betrayed my promise to the patient of being an analyst, of bring, bringing everything into the analytic process as discussable. And when, if I were to do that, I would consider that a betrayal. That, that's a much more serious thing. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to uh, just underscore uh, what Frank said about the distinction between disillusionment and betrayal. The word betrayal does not appear in the mandate for this panel, but actually, uh, it, it's, uh, I think he's quite right, it's not the same as disillusionment at all, uh, although it is disillusioning. Uh, so perhaps we could keep that in mind in the discussion and, and really uh, think about whether 
in our comments, we're talking about good disillusionment or whether we're talking about betrayal. And if betrayal, I'd like to open up the question of what is it exactly that's betrayed in a betrayal? I think you had a... I was going to respond. I was gonna respond yeah. To I'm sorry? I'd like to hear what... That's, I was going to respond to him. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so... I wanted to just mention that imaginary in one way, yes, but the other argument is that we're constantly doing this practice, actually. We're constantly remembering people in our lives, good and bad, all throughout the day. We wake up in the morning and someone is there in our thoughts. We are doing a kind of a Buddha Anusmriti practice all the time. The only difference between just our random memories and, and, a, and a Buddhist practice that's similar is that we do it more consciously and with more, um, yes, bringing forth the qualities of being witnessed um, in this figure. But in fact, it's not that different from what we do every day, actually, just remembering, having, having random memories. So the, the, there's a notion in, in Vajrayana Buddhist practice that we are actually surrounded by benevolent presences. And we can create a, a sort of recognition that we are surrounded by benevolent presences that isn't entirely a fiction. I mean, there's some of it is fictional, and some of it is not fictional. I mean, you know, just look around us in this room, there are benevolent presences in this room, but we're not thinking that most of the time. But in, in, in Vajrayana practice, you're kind of evoking that recognition as a way of, um, of, of changing your relationship to others. But you're using a, an image of the Buddha or something like that, but it's actually moving ourselves in a direction towards a relational capacity to access the goodness in, in the regular, ordinary, everyday people in our lives. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, Can I just add I'm a sorry. coda to that? Because, Tony, I think you're bringing up something so important and... and well, uh, um, I mean, well, there's a big part of psychoanalytic theory that talks exactly about this and the idea that it's a really important capacity that we develop to summon up benign presences and that actually it runs silently in the background for most of us and therefore we don't notice it. We simply are able to do it and, and summon up these presences and feel better. And it's only when we can't do it, either because we're in a hell realm or because we are habitually unable to do it, that, that it comes to light and it's a source of enormous pain and, and often that's a focus of psychoanalytic treatment. Um, so, you know, it is, there's, a, there's a really n nice care crossover here, I think, to, because I think what you're talking about, Willa, is um, a set of processes that explicitly recognize this issue and try to help with it in a, in a very specific structured way. And psychoanalysis has its own other ways of, of trying to do the same thing. I just want to say quickly that I, I just want to say quickly that we have a good model in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Group, and what happened there. Wonders, wonders. Mm, yeah. yeah. Thank you.
I'd just like to reiterate something that's been said by many of you. Uh, put in a plug for a positive view of uh, disillusion. Um, you know, there's a very important word in early Buddhism. It's part of a four-word sequence, which is translated usually as disillusion or even disenchantment. Now, if illusion is not seeing things as they are, and we dissipate that, surely that's a good thing. And what, what the context we're discussing here seems to be implying is that if there's an illusion about someone, and that person turns out not to be the way they, we want them to be, that the problem is with that. When in fact, the Buddhist perspective would say that the problem is with the illusion that we created in the first place. And if that gets broken, then that's a good thing. So the, the four words are, the first is seeing things as they really are. And that leads to nibbida is the word. It's really better disenchantment. It's like the enchantment that we're under, that we're going to get what we want, uh, is broken. And when that disenchantment is broken, that allows for a, uh, a no longer craving things to be different than they are. And that, the fourth word, is awakening. That's what allows us to be awakened. And the story they use to describe this word disenchantment or disillusionment is uh, of a dog that finds a bone that's been bleached in the sun for months. And the dog is chewing on it and chewing on it. At a certain point, he gets disillusioned by waking up to the, from the enchantment that he's going to get some kind of satisfaction from this bone. And so he spits it out. And that turning away from the desire to be gratified in whatever specific way is what really brings about awakening. So I just wonder if we can you know, tone that down a little, the voltage on that, and say maybe we can use this model even in psychotherapeutic settings where might it be a good thing for us to get disenchanted from our neuroses or uh, you know, get disillusioned of the fact that we're uh, a suffering victim of trauma or any of the other number of things that afflict us, in which case this idea of disillusionment is an escape or release from that rather than uh, a cause of deeper suffering. Um, you had a question? No. Thank you. Hi. Um, what just comes to mind is the rupture of relationship when there's a real betrayal or there's extreme disillusionment. And um, I like the idea of calling up benign, um, benign presences and the idea of you know, self-witnessing in relationship to that. I think that's really important. It sounds like it's important in Buddhism, and I think it's really important in psychotherapy. Um, to disagree with the fellow up there, um, talked about not desiring and awakening through there. Um, I see the opposite. And as a woman who grew up in a time where there was a lot of denial about uh, sexual feelings, uh, emotional feelings, a lot of subjugation. Um, I felt like I, I feel like I had found myself through realizing my desires and um, of course seeing them in a natural uh, way, in a natural process in relationship to myself and others, and keeping that in perspective, um, and seeing that as part of the whole, a whole 
important experience because if I'm denying my desire to eat, or if I'm design, if I'm denying my desire to have sexual pleasure, or if I'm design, denying my desire to speak, then I am becoming a cripple. So um, I guess that's it. Thank you. So maybe this is approaching a quorum or whatever, the audience. Um, so we have just a few closing things that we need to do. While we're all here, I do want to say uh, my thank yous to specific people, which I will do in a moment. And then we'll have 10, 15 minutes in which you can ask us questions, or if you prefer, I can ask all the presenters to give a statement, a short statement about what stands out for them or where they are now. It will be your choice. So, you, yeah, well, let's just, we will hold on to it for a moment, contain it for a moment, and then uh, I'll ask you what you want because I first want to do the thank yous. And um, I don't know for sure if everybody is in here who's, who was out there, but let's hope. Um, so first, is Megan here? Ah, there she is. Please stand up. Let's thank Megan Bisbee first for her incredible work. I don't know if you know that Megan is a Dharma practitioner and did a three-month retreat at IMS and uh, is a, an artist and also becoming a therapist. And she fitted us into her busy world, even though she lives in California. And so she's been steering this boat from way far away. So uh, I think she's, she and the team of volunteers have done a terrific, terrific job. So let's just applaud the volunteers once more, too. So others that I want to thank. First, um, Harvard Divinity School for the use of their beautiful space and uh, all that they've done to back the conference and make it a success. Uh, and then to the Radius Foundation, who gave us a very generous grant. I don't know if anyone from Radius is here or if there was anyone representing Radius. They were supposed to have people here, but it seems not, unless they were here earlier. And then we had another anonymous donor who was also very generous. And then we had uh, the co-sponsor, the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, uh, that um, Paul Fulton and his colleagues, um, I was going to say own, but I don't think that's it. No, it just came up in my mind. I, I would say are. Um, so um, individual donors, Tamara Bisbee, Deborah Boyer, Grace Shearson, Zach Schlossler, and Polly Young-Eisendrath uh, have been donors for supporting the conference and Enlightening Conversations. And then uh, the other administrator person was Lori Roberts, uh, who has been the person who has run our website. Well, Megan's run it, but Lori helped with various postings and various announcements from my end. Um, of course, I want to thank our wonderful panelists. They were incredible. And you, the audience, really, we wouldn't have been here if it weren't for you, of course. <laughs> but uh, it was a complete conversation. 
You know, I feel that pretty much everybody had a chance, and most people took that chance to speak and to contribute to the conversation on every level. I mean, I hope you did in your small groups as well, from the point of view of asking honest questions, taking a risk, and also talking about your experience and from your experience. So um, in this last, did I miss anything? I think I got it all. So um, in this last period of time then, let's take 10 to 15 minutes, and I'm going to ask you, how many people would vote for closing remarks coming from the panel? That looks like the majority. Okay, in that case, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that lovely? Is there more of us down here, I think, than up there? So we're going we're gonna to start with Mal Slavin. We're going to start on that end of it. And I'm going to ask you to say whatever it is that comes to your mind, stands out, about what you've learned, how you've been affected, what you're going to take home, or what remains unanswered. Any of those things would be fine. And then pass it on to the next person. Okay, on to the next person. Okay, I think uh, a couple of things briefly come to my mind. Uh, uh, the, one of the chief ones were, was the, a theme that emerged in our discussion group, in our smaller discussion group, uh, with that Chris I, and I did in which uh, Chris really elucidated and illuminated um, a lot about the incredible variety within Buddhist traditions and the incredible disparities or differences and tensions between Eastern Buddhism and Amer American Buddhism, <coughs> particularly around the interaction between uh, what Eastern Buddhists were wanting to find and what American Buddhists or potential Buddhists or Jews or Bojus were, were looking for in an acceptable form of religion. Uh, and that something got fashioned in American Buddhism that really was a synthesis of those two long, long longings. Uh, both, of which, both of which represent breaks in, in different religious traditions uh, and the creation of a, of a third new one. That, that was a very important perspective on what we're doing here for me because I think much of what we're talking about exists within a cultural historical context. Many of us come from different religious backgrounds and Buddhism represents a particular way of uh, both rebelling from and finding continuities with those, with those backgrounds, uh, whether they're Christian, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, um, particular ways of both rebelling and finding something. So that was a really important aspect of culture and intellectual history for me um, that uh, I find, I find really it will stimulate more reading and thinking on my own about Buddhism at that level. Um, in terms of the whole theme of disillusionment at the end of the conference, I, I kept thinking that... Uh, you thought it was a chair. Somebody fell. 
but it's going to so, be okay. Okay. Yeah. It was, the line is so long you can't. The illusion there was a chair there, <laughs> and uh, that, that they disillusioned. It's a chair betrayal. Uh, one other thought that around this uh, question of disillusionment and betrayal, um, what I tried to illustrate in, in my story this morning about Noah and, uh, and Sarah, Sarah, his mother, or his, through his mother, his, ther his therapist, was that this question of disillusionment was a powerfully interactive one that there is a dimension to, yes, there are certain disillusionments and betrayals that take place because somebody just perpetrates them in some very narrow and shallow way. But there's a much more pervasive and I think in, in, important aspect of disillusionment as we were talking about it in the complex paradoxical sense in which talking about patients or students challenge the person in authority in ways to open themselves, open their own, call it multiplicity or conflict within themselves, to see how the therapist or the analyst or the teacher deals with the very kinds of conflicts that, uh, that the patient is struggling with. Often that goes on, you know, not explicitly in those words, but it's very often what's taking place just like Noah, at six years old, was doing with Sarah when he said, but mom, you love yourself more than me. And then mom, but I love myself more than you. That was an attempt to elicit and evoke a level of conflict beyond words in her to see her wrestling with that, from which the question of trust emerges very powerfully. Because he couldn't trust a mother who was denying the realities he saw every day nor could he trust a mother who could deny that conflict in herself. Thank you, Mel. I, I am going to have to manage the time, I realize, because we'll, we'll try to get out of here by 6. I thought maybe we'd get out of here earlier, but... So thank you. So how much time does that give us? About three minutes, two minutes. Two minutes. It gives us about two minutes. I think just a few words, maybe. Yeah, but really, I don't want to say absolutely, you know. So let's, we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. People on the other end don't say much. They don't say much. <laughs> <laughs> they just manifest. <laughs> okay. What I've been uh, personally sort of tracking and thinking about a lot is what can Buddhism learn from therapists and analysts? I think all too often there's a smugness on the side of Buddhism, and I'm thinking specifically about certain Zen teachers with the claim that you know Buddhist practice or the Zen form of practice really nips the problem in the bud in terms of the depth of the penetration, the insight, the transformation. And you really don't need therapy. That's sort of a surface thing. Um, and so my interest, you know, it's beyond the scope of this conference, but, um, you know, especially when we're talking about issues of power, authority, abuse, the aftermath, um, and maybe other areas, you know, maybe this is something to hear from all of you down the line, but um, what is it that um, Buddhism can learn from therapists and psychoanalysts? Because it seems often that it's therapists coming to Buddhism to learn about mindfulness or compassion or certain Buddhist, you know, psychological doctrines. But um, what about Buddhists coming to therapists and analysts and studying at your feet rather than vice versa? Uh, for my part, there, there are some things I know about the psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic tradition, and then there's some things I don't know about. And of course, that category is vastly larger. 
I learned a lot this weekend. Uh, so many of you so uh, skillfully articulated some of the basic ideas. Uh, I really learned a lot from that. I appreciate it. I also want to uh, appreciate the, uh, what I learned from the Mahayana teachers here today. Uh, I'm continually impressed by uh, what a beautiful tradition that is, and especially when it's so well exemplified and articulated as it was this weekend. I, I really encourage my sensitivity to that. And re lastly, uh, regarding my own tradition, I got a new appreciation of uh, the Buddha's hesitancy to teach. <laughs> that uh, this goes against the stream of the world and people are not going to want to hear this and I think there's a big gap between what he was saying and uh, what we're all experiencing. So I, I take away a great deal but I'll just mention one sort of qualitative thing which is uh, I've come away feeling like as a, as a Buddhist informed therapist I may be a little attached to emptiness. And hearing these analysts speak uh, about the interaction with such nuance and such close attention and such care is a bit of a wake-up, you know, kind of tuned back into uh, the, the, the worldly domain again uh, in a different way. Um, I was pretty much laughed out of the room while we were planning this conference when I asked the psychoanalysts if the goal of psychoanalysis was happiness. <laughs> Still, it is true. <laughs> so I want to say a little bit about the difference um, that I see between doing therapy and helping people to learn how to practice Zen. First of all, in, in therapy, we really uh, spend time talking about personal suffering and the specifics of it, whereas what we teach people, at least what I teach people, is um, that suffering is universal. You got a belly button, you got suffering. And so then from that, accepting that, where do, how do you work with it? Um, but I think in both cases, um, suffering is the main event. Also, one, if one does uh, Zen training long enough, one does become a Zen teacher. That doesn't happen in, in psychoanalysis. You have to go back to school to do that. So that's a big difference. Um, the other thing I wanted to say that was similar about both is that the idealization of both the teacher and the therapist need to be resolved in some way. Um, and so that brings up all the issues of projection and, um, um, and the idea of liberation and how much is possible. And what we need to do is take responsibility for ourselves being liberated once we see that the teacher does have some problems. Finally, I'll leave you with um, one of my favorite Soto Zen expressions, not knowing is most intimate. Uh, so first I want to express my gratitude. Um, many of you are my friends, my old friends, and then they're new friends, and it's been an extraordinary experience to plan this conference, then see it happen, and then see all of you here and experience it. And um, I'm gonna just give a few lines from Leonard Cohen. Uh, Gather up your brokenness and bring it to me now, the fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. The splinters that you carry, the cross you left behind, come healing of the body, come healing of the mind. Um, well, 
I have a few things uh, about the theme of the conference, but um, I'd just like to actually uh, use at least some of the time for uh, something a little different, which is, um, you know, creating um, something radically new from nothing um, is a huge, huge sacrifice. Um, this kind of thing that works, the structure, uh, the way it's been set up, it's unprecedented. And as far as I know, it's completely the, um, the, the mind, heart, and energy of Polly. And I'd just like to acknowledge that in a really big way. And the rest is theory, so I'm going to pass it on. <laughs> well, I'm taking with me home just a deep appreciation for the work that all of you therapists do. And um, I'm inspired by that work, uh, by the care that you clearly bring to the people that you see every day. And that really inspires me. Um, also, I come away with a greater appreciation for the shadow side of idealization mm -hmm. and splitting, and I want to read more about that. I'm really interested and uh, drawn to that. And also, um, this idea that uh, humility is the end of psychoanalysis, I really loved that uh, presentation because I feel that's true with Buddhism too, that that's the end of Buddhist practice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you stole my thunder. I was going to do the same thing for Polly. <laughs> Closer. <laughs> I got the idea first. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'm going to be very uh, unkosher and, and take a chance here. And I hope nobody takes this the wrong way. But the thing, I have to admit, really, Polly said, what are you going to really take home? You know what the thing is that really is in my mind, the imago that most is most striking? is a conversation I had with Grace sitting down last night at the Irving House and her telling me, about the scandals of Zen because it destroyed my idealization of Zen. <laughs> right there, it was a pulverizing job. Okay? And You're welcome. Realize, Anyone else? <laughs> this is a great example of how you don't realize you have it until you lose it. I didn't realize I had such an idealization. But when she told me about this, I realized that people tell me <coughs> Zen, I get very intimidated. I think they know everything, they're perfect, they've got this ethereal quality to their lives and they couldn't possibly do anything wrong. So while it destroyed my idealization, there was also a huge relief, okay, in the sense of, well, maybe, you know, I have something to contribute to them too, you know, as well as <laughs> them to me. And, um, I, but it, in another sense, um, I got a great deal out of this conversation, I had a great time, and, and I, I got a great deal out of recognizing um, Buddhism in its various aspects and it gave me a broadening understanding of it and it really helped me uh, to gain a sense of how much we really do have in common, which I really had not realized before. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I think that uh, the private feeling of uh, my encounters with certain with people uh, I've not met before uh, is one of the deep pleasures for me of this experience. Um, and I'm thinking of something that our discussion group arrived at, uh, really through struggling with uh, beginning with each other and focusing, I think, on ethics, but 
the emptiness of words, uh, and the impersonal, the personal, and the interpersonal came up. And I think I want to reiterate something arrived at in the discussion group, that whatever the impersonal and whatever the personal that we hold, whatever states they are, it always feels important, and apropos of what the shock, how do we treat each other? How do we want to treat each other? How do we intend to treat each other? How do we feel about how we're being treated? How do we feel about how we just treated somebody? Feels um, in common in all endeavors, certainly Buddhist and psychoanalytic. Um, first, I want to say that uh, uh, the, the idea of grace polarizing and idealization shocked me. <laughs> I wouldn't ever think her capable of doing anything like that. <laughs> he said that um, second, I realize I neglected to thank the members of my panel at the end. I'd like, I'd like to do so now. Uh, thank them for their very good work on a difficult, uh, complex, and, and fraught topic. And last, my personal reaction to the conference, I um, was struck by um, how complex everything is and how, how little uh, we know really about uh, what, uh, what we're all saying to each other. I appreciate the generosity of spirit with which everyone approached it and uh, not only defined some concepts told us what they meant, but told us why they meant that, to give an idea of where they're coming from. Because I think we need to understand where, each of us needs to understand where the others are coming from before we can either agree or disagree about anything. Uh, I think that's essential. I, I think this is a, a good start, and uh, there's a lot, a lot more work to be done. Yeah, I think I, um I had no idea what to expect, but I, I think my expectations were very low. Um, <laughs> because I just couldn't imagine what people would talk about in this kind of mixed setting. And, uh, but it really did surprise me how people came together and shared a lot of personal experience and feeling and didn't just retreat into our usual safe havens. So I congratulate um, I, I think my expectations might have been even lower than yours, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, uh, I was happy to be invited to this, but I had no idea how it would unfold. And I have to say how grateful I am to both Polly and Grace, who are who I think was uh, the, the shadow co-coordinator, maybe? The shadow it? coordinator? Yes, uh, the pulverizer in chief. The pulverizer in chief. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I had such a great weekend with everybody. I've met some new friends, I think, had really interesting, stimulating conversations with people that I don't think I'd meet in an ordinary Buddhist context here at the Divinity School. Um, I think there are a couple of things that are going to stand up for me, but I don't know because this is going to keep cooking, and I'm not ready to take the lid off yet. So it's still going, but 
I, I always want to remember uh, the dog with the bone from Andy. Uh, my mother always used to tell me I was like a dog with a bone. I didn't know it had a Buddhist antecedent, so I'm really happy to hear that. Um, I also love the idea, which I'm just going to slightly retranslate, of uh, disenchantment and re-enchantment. I think that's awesome. I think there is that continual process, and I hope we keep being disenchanted and re-enchanted again and again and again in our practice. Uh, and another thing that I'm going to take with me is how much I admire everybody in this room, uh, the panelists, the presenters. The heart of meeting suffering is so strong in all of us. We really want to do this. We see suffering. And the fact that, uh, that this conference happened in the context of the terrorist bombings in Paris yesterday I think that's very important. It, I know for me, it kept my feet on the ground through the whole weekend, that, that uh, suffering is not a theory. And human beings who come to us, whether as patients, clients, or students, um, everyone suffers. And to meet that suffering uh, takes some, uh, some great, deep, heartful intention. So I was happy to see that universally. And I'd like to uh, acknowledge and, uh, and uh, express my gratitude, really, for the motivation that we all share, uh, the motivation that brought everyone to this room for you know, various reasons, but underlying it all, I think, a, a sense of recognition of suffering and a desire for hope and, uh, and the capacity to change both ourselves and the world, maybe, for the better. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to marvel at how rare this space is. I mean, I do these two weird things. I'm a psychoanalyst, and I'm a meditator. I'm a Zen priest. And I don't share either of those with most of the world. So to have a space here where all these wonderful, warm-hearted, smart people share this stuff with each other is just such a wonderful experience for me, so real. And beyond that, um, from a Zen perspective, I think falling out of my chair is the clearest expression of <laughs> there when you look. And I, I so often throughout the panel, especially uh, the, I, I, I found myself thinking to myself, yes, yes, that, that, yes. <laughs> and uh, I was really, uh, I was really uh, stunned and appreciative of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've also been reflecting on the words of the Soto Zen ancestor who said, in that place where fundamentally nothing is, uh, is acquired, you really do acquire it. <laughs> and it was such a pleasure to meet all of you Buddhas and Bodhisattva. So this is the final thank you, and may we meet again, and may enlightening conversations continue in Chicago next time. And everywhere. So, and everywhere after that. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.